So today we're starting a new teaching series called The Bible Abridged, where over the course of a handful of weeks, we're going to walk through the entire story of Scripture. And today we start where you have to start, which is at the beginning. And so our reading today comes from the book of Genesis. And, and what we will see is the moment immediately following Adam and Eve's fall really dive into sin. They are covered with shame as a result of their sin, and they go hiding, but God goes looking, which in and of itself tells us something profound about the character of God. We screw things up, to say the least. We are covered in shame. Our instinct is to hide and retreat, yet God does not leave us in our hiding, but pursues us and finds us so that he might love us. God seeks out Adam and Eve, and he... He lets them feel the full weight of, of their decisions, the implications of their, their choice to rebel against him. But also in this, he gives a promise as he speaks to Satan. He gives a promise that one will come through the line of the woman, through the line of Eve, who will confront sin, death, and Satan himself. And while Satan will bruise Jesus' heel, Jesus, the one that it points to, will crush evil's head. Amen. Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 8. In the cool of the evening, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking around in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. The Lord God called to the man and asked him, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. God asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the fruit of the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man answered, the woman, the one that you gave me. Oh, bad move, dude. <laughs> she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The snake deceived me and I ate. The woman answered, so the Lord God said to the snake, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the wild or domestic animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will be the lowest of animals as long as you live. I will make you and the woman hostile toward each other. I will make your descendants and her descendant hostile toward each other. And here comes the allusion to Christ. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Bible, it's made up of 66 different books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. It was originally written in three different languages, primarily Hebrew and Greek, but also a little bit of Aramaic. It has 40-plus different contributors who wrote things down, compiled it together. And those contributors include prophets and teachers and rabbis and disciples and laity and poets and even a couple of kings. There's a lot of different literature represented in this book. There is, of course, historical narrative. There's poetry and prose. There's history. There is even architectural details. It was compiled over the course of 1,500 years. It was written on three different continents. And it's long. 
If you sat down to read it in one sitting, you're in for a ride. It would take you at least 60 hours to read it front to back, start to finish. And yet, what the Christian faith teaches, what we believe, is that this book has one story. It is, in fact, one complete, unified story. And the reason it is one complete and unified story is because it has one author. Today, as we start this series, we're going to look at really the first few moments in this story, the first 15 chapters of Genesis. Yes, that's what we're going to cover today. You might be thinking, do we have time for that? Barely. We'll look at Genesis chapter 1 through 15. I'll tell the story of those first 15 chapters. And I decided because it would be fun, and things are always better with some visuals, that I would enlist the help of artificial intelligence to tell this story. And so the illustrations that you'll see this morning, every illustration was created by AI. I took little snippets of the scriptures from Genesis chapter 1 through 15, dropped it into an AI image generator, and this is what it came up with. So... If you don't like it, it's not my fault. Blame the computers that are going to take over the world. (laughs) We start in the beginning, the book of Genesis. But, But really, where the story begins is with God. God who has the power to turn nothing into something. He takes nothingness and some chaos, and he's able to take that nothing and that chaos, and he's able to turn it into order and perfection and beauty and purpose. And each step of the way, as he creates, he calls it all good, 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 good. And the crown, the height, the centerpiece of his creation is humanity. It's mankind, epitomized in Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve are special. All of humanity is special, we're told, because humanity, unlike anything else in all of creation, is made in the image of God. There is something of the divine that we reflect out to the rest of the world. And there's also a special relationship. You you could call it a partnership. Humanity is invited into this partnership with God where we reign and rule in this creation, in this world, alongside of him, under his authority, submitted to him, trusting in him, but stewarding with him, caring with him, creating alongside of him. We are not him, but he invites us to take part in his work. And the question that emerges at the beginning is this. Will humanity be faithful in this relationship? Will Adam and Eve and all of their descendants be good stewards of creation? Will they take God up on the partnership that they are promised and be caretakers and creators and co-reigners and rulers in this world to God's glory and the benefit of others? That's the question that emerges. The picture of this question is a tree. A tree that is planted in the middle of what's called the Garden of Eden. It's labeled the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it really represents the opportunity that's in front of humanity to either live in submission and trust to God in this partnership and relationship that he's established, or to, in the words of Fleetwood Mac, go your own way. 
The tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents the opportunity in front of humanity to define their own good and evil, to define right and wrong on their own terms, to be their own God, and to define their own reality. Will they eat the fruit? At this point, a new character emerges. A new voice is heard. It's the voice of evil personified. And this voice is a voice of rebellion. And it's a voice that urges them to eat the fruit. In the name of freedom, in the lie that said it's truth, it says you should trust your own instinct, follow your own impulses, be your own God. The one who created you and made this promise to you, he can't be trusted, he's out to get you. You should do what you want, take power in your own hands, define good and evil, right and wrong, reality itself on your own terms. Eat the fruit, rebel. And so they do. And at that moment, at that moment of rebellion, that very first moment of sin, shame comes flooding into creation. And exactly what God had warned them would happen, happens. God had warned them that should they want to do things their own way, that it would lead to death, not just physical death, but the death of, of trust, the death of love, the death of hope, the death of peace. All of these things are now realities having rebelled against God. They eat the fruit and it ushers in all of this and they are covered, covered in shame and covered in shame for the sin that they've committed and the death that they've brought into society. Adam and Eve go on to build a shame-ridden, corrupt, evil culture, a corrupt and confused culture that is labeled Babel. This corrupt and confused civilization eventually gets scattered around the world. In the rubble of this corrupt civilization, two people emerge. We're given their names, it's Abram and Sarai. And God makes another promise. God makes a promise to Abram and Sarai saying that through you, I will reconstitute my family. The promise of a family living in relationship with me that was lost in the garden when Adam and Eve originally sinned, I, I'm, I'm recasting, re-giving that promise to the world through you. And through you, there will be a family through which everyone will have an opportunity to be a part of my family, and I will right all the wrongs. I will fix all the problems. I will get rid of the shame. I will right the relationship between humanity and its creator through this family. Get ready, Abram and Sarai. It's going to happen. And to demonstrate just how committed he was to this promise, God cuts a covenant with Abram. In the ancient world, cutting a covenant, making a covenant was a, a brutal and serious task. It was a common thing in the ancient world between two parties. It was more than a contract. It was really a promise unto death that both sides would keep up their end of the bargain no matter what. I, I told you it was brutal. It, it is brutal. It, it involved the death of dozens of animals, 
brought by either party to show the level of commitment that they have to this. Those animals are then cut in half and the pieces are set apart and it forms kind of a little river or pool of blood between them. And then typically, each party would walk through that river of blood as a way of saying, may this happen to me if I fail to keep up my part of the covenant. They walk through and their feet are covered in blood and they're surrounded by death. Here's how serious it is. May this happen to me if I fail to keep up my part of the covenant. And both parties walk through the river of blood to show their commitment. But when God cuts a covenant with Abram, something really fascinating happens. Abram falls asleep. He must have the same disease that I do, which is whenever you sit down, you sleep. (laughs) It, It afflicts usually men over the age of 35 and with small children in the home. Now, at this point, Abram had no children. He was just getting a head start. He falls asleep. But God doesn't wake him up. No, God, embodied in this particular moment as a a smoking pot and a pillar of flame, God walks through or, or goes through the river of blood once, as if for himself, but then also, we're led to believe, goes through it again. The implication is, he's going through not just for his side of the bargain, But he's treading through the blood for Abram's side of the bargain, too. So catch this. What God is essentially saying here is, I'm making a covenant with Abram, but it's fully dependent on who? It's fully dependent on me, God. Because if I don't keep up my part of the deal, I'll die. God's going to keep up his part of the deal. And if Abram and his descendants don't keep up their part of the deal, being faithful to me, loving me, following me, trusting me, believing me, though they should die, I will be held accountable. What? Hold that in your back pocket. Those are the first 15 chapters of Genesis. Now, what you and I need to know in order for us to make sense of this in light of the rest of this series is that in these first 15 chapters of Genesis, three voices emerge that will continue through the rest of the scriptures and indeed, con- <clears throat> and indeed continue through the rest of the world into our day and age today. Those three voices are this, the voice of promise, the voice of rebellion, and the voice of shame. The voice of promise is the voice of God. You hear it in the first few minutes of this story. God is making promise after promise. I promise to be your God. You're going to be my people. You're going to be partners in creation with me. You'll love and serve me, but you will also lead and and reign over creation. And then when mankind falls into sin, God makes a promise. I'm going to send someone who's going to fix it. And then he looks at Abram and Sarai and says, I'm going to make a family through you that will bless the entire world. Promise after promise after promise after promise. That's the voice of God, a promise to humanity. And then there's the voice of rebellion, and that's, that's the voice of evil. That's the voice that you first hear on the lips of the snake in the Garden of, of Eden, the voice that says, you cannot trust the promise. 
You cannot trust the goodness of God, the intentions of God, the presence of God, the power of God. You must put things in your own hands and be your own God, do things your own way. That's the voice of evil that emerges in the garden, continues through the scriptures, and that voice of rebellion is heard today. And then there's the voice of shame. And that's the voice that every member of broken humanity carries with them. That's the voice that Adam and Eve heard in their head the moment that they sinned that caused them to go hide away from the presence of God. The voice that says, I'm bad, I'm wrong, I can't do enough, I can't be enough, and so I have to hide. And that voice continues in the heart of every human being to this day. And with those three voices at work in the scriptures, the question that hangs over the rest of the Bible, among many other questions, is this. God's people, as they seek to be formed and fulfill this promise, God's people, which voice will they listen to? These people who are, who are sinful and broken and have the voice of shame in them, which of the other two voices will they partner with? Will they partner with the voice of rebellion that says, you're your own God, do your own thing your own way? Or will they partner with the voice of the promise that says God is good, God loves you, his grace and mercy are enough for you, he has a purpose and plans for you, trust him, love him, follow him. Which, which voice will they listen to? And the same question looms over the people who follow God today. The same question is true for you and me. Which voice will we listen to? As the people of God in this present day, in this present moment, and as sinful people who carry shame, just like Adam and Eve did, which voice will we partner with? Will we partner with the voice of rebellion that says, hey, the only way out of this is with your own two hands, with your own ingenuity, your own effort, your own gut, your own instincts, defining your own sense of right and wrong, you defining reality, you being God, you doing it, you taking it, you doing you, that's the only way out. Will you side with that voice with your shame? Or will you listen to the promise? That's the question. And of course, we, we know through Old Testament history what God's people did. Did they listen to the voice of the promise and trust God completely? <laughs> no. To say the least, no. Uh, they, they not only listened to the promise, I mean, listened to the rebellion, they loved the rebellion. And they did their own thing over and over and over again. And yet what did God keep doing? Promising and promising and promising to them. But here's the thing that we see in their story that you can also see in your own. When we, with our shame, choose to partner with the voice of rebellion, choose to listen to those lies, it only serves to compound our shame and to amplify it, to make it bigger in our lives. We think, buying the lie, that we make things better for ourselves by just following our gut, putting things in our own hands, being our own God, and instead we end up making things worse, and it ends up amplifying and compounding your shame. And, and what I know about myself and, and what I as a pastor have seen in the lives of so many other people is that when, when you are when you are covered in shame, you tend to do one of two things with it. You tend to either wear it like a weight or wield it like a weapon. When you, when you amplify your shame, one of two things happens. It becomes this heavy weight that wears you down 
and pulls you into darkness and hopelessness and negativity where everything's bad, it's always awful, it's never, ever going to get better. Or what tends to happen is you wield it like a weapon. You take your wound and your hurt and what you say. You may not say these words, but, but they're in here. If I have to hurt, somebody else is going to hurt too. You've heard that phrase, hurt people, hurt people. Well, it's true, right? We, we take our shame and we just create more problems and more hurt for other people. If I got to live with this pain, then you're going to have to live with pain. And so we, we numb ourselves to the problems and needs of other people. We become cold and distant or we use our words in a really sharp and cutting way. And please understand, when you're doing that, it, it's... It's just you in a dysfunctional way trying to deal with all of your sin and your shame and your hurt and your wounds. That's what you are doing. And when we listen to the voice of rebellion and couple it with our shame, we just compound that shame and we create more of those problems where we are weighed down by guilt or we are wounding others with our own wounds being used as weapons. As we move forward in the story of God, as we move forward in this series, what you'll see is that there is this constant invitation in front of God's people to take the shame that they carry and pivot away from the voice of rebellion and pivot toward the voice of the promise. To turn toward the promises of God to say, I know I carry shame over my sin, guilt over the person the, per, the things I've done and the person I'm not. But rather than lean more into myself and into the lies of the evil one who, who prowls like a roaring lion, I will turn toward the voice of truth, which is the promises of God, and lean into those things. And friends, I, I would say to you that, that it, is, it is definitely easier for us to do that today than it was for our Old Testament counterparts. Because for them, turning towards the promise, the voice of the promise of God, was, was to turn toward a promise that was made, but not yet fulfilled. It was a promise all looking toward Jesus. But, spoiler alert, Jesus, the Savior, the one predicted and hinted at in Genesis chapter 3, has arrived. And now for us, turning toward the promises of God. It's not about trusting in some promises that are yet to be fulfilled. We get to trust in a promise that has been kept and that promise has a name. His name is Jesus. Think again about what happened in the cutting of the covenant with Abram, where God walked through both sides, where God walked through for both sides. Now look at Jesus on the cross. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God in flesh, God himself, and he's dying. Why is God dying? Well, remember the promise he made when he cut that covenant with Abram, where he said, we're going to build a family through whom there is salvation for the world, through whom everything's going to be made right that's wrong. And if I don't keep up my end of the deal, I'll die. He keeps up his end of the deal. But even if Abram and his descendants are unfaithful, even if they continually rebel, 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 and listen to the wrong voice each and every time, I will take it upon myself to 
keep this covenant alive. And so what is Jesus doing? Jesus is God dying for the unfaithfulness of man. Jesus is God being sacrificed for the rebellion of humanity. Jesus is God taking our accountability on his own shoulders so that the covenant can be kept, the promise can be whole, and we can receive all of the benefits of it. When you pivot toward the promise that is kept in Jesus Christ, rather than just double down on rebellion, what happens is it, rather than amplify your shame, it quiets your shame. It quiets your shame because you're able to look at Jesus Christ and know, look, my, my sin has been dealt with in him, promise kept. I'm forgiven. I am a member of the family because Jesus Christ has, has kept up all sides of the bargain to secure me a place in that family, promise kept. I am loved by God even though I am so unlovable toward him because of what Jesus Christ has done. Promise kept. I pivot towards that promise and it's a promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ and rather than amplify my shame, it quiets it. Nothing I have done can undo the promise that has been kept in Jesus Christ. Amen. Quiet shame. Be silent, sin. That's what Jesus Christ has accomplished. We'll get to it later in the series as we walk through the timeline of the narrative of Scripture, but I just want to fast forward really quickly to what the Apostle Paul will say deep in the New Testament about what Jesus Christ has accomplished. He's referencing here Jesus Christ as the, as the one in whose death all those who have rebelled against God are made right with God. Jesus, the ultimate covenant sacrifice, keeping the promise and allowing all of the goodness of God to be true for us. Colossians chapter 1. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, Jesus Christ, and through Jesus Christ to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood. There is peace made between humanity and God the Father through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God because of our rebellion and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. The promise is that you are holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation through Jesus Christ. That's the voice of the promise. And as you feel the weight of sin and shame, which voice will you listen to this week? Which voice will you listen to? The one that says, no. Keep everything in your sinful hands, follow your gut, do it your own way, be your own God, or will you pivot to the voice that says, you are free from blemish. You are free from accusation. You are right with the Father through the work of the Son because the promise that was made deep in Genesis has been kept in Jesus Christ for you. Which voice will you listen to? Will you double down on shame? by listening to the voice of rebellion or will you listen to the voice of promise that says you are loved 
and you're forgiven and you belong in the Father's family. And you see, when you, when you listen to the voice of promise and it quiets that shame, it makes space for you to ponder and then, and then pursue being a whole new kind of person and living out faithfully the call that was placed upon Adam and Eve in the very beginning to mirror God's presence in this world, free from guilt and shame, with a heart full of love to your neighbor, to your kids, to your coworkers, to everybody that you see. The Bible is incredible, to say the least. 66 books, 40 plus different authors, three different continents, 1,500 years, and yet one story because it has one author. I pray that you would discover the riches of this story and how it is full of not just information, but it is a, a vehicle for transformation as you understand yourself in light of this story. I'll leave you with this final illustration. There are really two ways for you to see and understand the story of God. The first is like a, a picture in a museum. A picture in a museum is something you, you stop and you stare at and you study and you look at it. And you may even call it a masterpiece. You may even say it's beautiful, but really you just, you stop and you stare at it and you study it, which is okay. But that's not what the scriptures were meant to be. The scriptures were not given to us. The story of God was not given to us for it to be looked at. It was given to us so that we might look through it. It's, it's not a picture on a wall. It is a window. It is a window that we peer through to see the world. We look through the story of God to see the world, to see ourselves, to see our neighbors, to see God, to see things as they were, to see things as they are, and to see things as they will be. We don't stare at it. We look through it. May you see yourselves through the lens of Scripture, through the window of Scripture, and know that you are created. You are made for a purpose, to be in relationship and partnership with God, that there are multiple voices in this world. There is a voice of rebellion that says, do your own thing, but there's also a voice of promise that says, there is purpose, there's a plan, there is peace between you and the Father, and there is forgiveness for every single sin that you commit. There is that voice as well. May you, may you turn towards that voice in the difficulties of this week when you feel the weight of sin and shame. Turn towards that voice. And rather than amplify your shame, may you quiet it. And may your story be filled with more purpose and greater peace. Amen. Amen.